Welcome to the first episode of Minds Behind Maps. I'm Maxim Lernermund, and this is the first episode in this experiment I'm trying out, where I want to sit down with people who are creating and using anything geospatial to try to understand more about the field and the people in it. My first victim in this endeavor is Ian Schuler, the CEO of Development Seed, a company I've been curious about for quite some time now, as I saw how much they contribute to open source projects and just how generally open they seem. They've been working with partners like the Washington Post, of which we talked about in length in this episode, as well as the World Bank, UNICEF, and the American Red Cross, and many other organizations. Ian talks about the challenges they're trying to solve, how open source is a part of the answer to some of those problems, as well as what he thinks about the current state of the industry. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did, and hopefully as much as Ian did talking with me. Either way, I'd be really happy to know what you think about this. Feel free to reach out on Twitter. This is where I'm most active. I'm at Max Lenement. And while you're at it, Ian Schuler and Development Seed might be worth a follow if you ask me. In the meantime, here's my conversation with Ian Schuler. So can you... Start by telling me like who you are and how you would like describe yourself. Sure. Uh, so I'm Ian Schuler. I'm the CEO of Development Seed. And how I would describe myself? I mean, I get that's a, 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 a seems feels like a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, so it, to the extent that I'm the head of Development Seed, what I do here is I take a bunch of really impressive, smart people who have who are great at building things. And I find a bunch of really hard, interesting problems out there. And I try to match those two things together. Uh, and if I'm doing my job well, I am empowering a group of people who I am constantly impressed by to do some of the best work of their lives for another group of people that I'm constantly impressed by who are solving really hard problems around the world. Uh, and yeah, when that works, it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, and so who am I? Um, yeah, I, I think what I bring to this that hopefully makes me good at, at this role is, is being able to um, really dig in on problems. Uh, I like to make connections uh, that maybe people haven't seen previously. I like to, uh, to sort of figure out how to game the system where uh, finding ways to bend the assumptions and rules in ways that get you to a point that is really something new and special, right? And I think like, under, like, first you have to understand the rules, but then you also have to like, know how to, how to manipulate them, right? So all of the, the best artists in the world did this. They understood the rules of perspective and painting and all that, then they broke them. And they didn't just break them in like random ways. They broke them in very thoughtful ways that created a new way of looking at a problem. And that's, when, again, when when we're at when I'm at my best, when we're at our best, that's the sort of uh, that's the sort of work that we're doing, and 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 what I really get the most joy out of. Do you have an example of of one of those cases where you feel like you need to bend the rules to get somewhere? Yeah, I mean, geez, all the time, right? Like uh, on things as mundane as like, how do you? create a business model around what mm -hmm. we're doing. Like, like, yeah, I think one of the things that is unique about development seed is how much we contribute 
to open source uh, and how much we try to take what we've learned and um, and make that available to other people, right? Um, I think that's not things the natural reaction for a lot of the other peer groups. There are plenty of other groups that work this, this way as well, right? And I don't want to, um, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like we've come up with something too, too, uh, you know, that we're the only ones that do this or the first ones that do this, but then figuring out how to, how to then take that desire to want to put knowledge out into the world, not open data, open, open code, uh, but still be able to use that as a way of, of not just being a nice to thing to do on the side, but also, but actually a thing that drives our core way of working core business. And we found, I think that actually to the converse, the, the open source work that we're putting out there and the tools we're building because we're building things that are useful and usable and, and actually doing it in a, um, in a kind of, in a manner that is trying to make the work, make things easier, make things easier for ourselves, but make things easier for other people that ends up like actually leading to more work and opportunities. Uh, it's not just at all. It is altruistic, but it actually ends up being uh, a thing that, that is so important to how we work, right? It brings in new opportunities. It allows us to, to capture work without having to do a whole, a ton of, business development like other organizations are investing in. Uh, it allows that work to be already be highly aligned with us, right? Because the people who see the things that we're building and say, yeah, I need that and I need more of it. I need to do this thing for me. Those people are already coming from a similar worldview. They have problems that are very well matched, the sorts of things that we can we can solve. And, and, and they tend to want to be co-collaborators, right? They're not just hiring you to create X widget for them. They're hiring you to figure out how this thing that you're building can help them solve this problem that it's so close it's almost there but it needs like how can we how can we repurpose it for that goal which is great and it also allows us to be constantly sort of surfing the edge of what's possible and so when you're a services firm you either need to you either end up on that side of things where you're surfing the edge of what's possible and people hire you because you bring uh and in insight or value that they can't easily find anywhere else because it hasn't been commodified yet, or you're the commodifier, right? Where you figured out how to lock this down and squeeze value out of it. So you, you have built this widget a hundred times and you can build it faster, better, more efficient than anybody else. Uh, but on that side of things in a rapidly moving environment like tech and, and geospatial tech in particular, there's a lot of risk of, of somebody inventing a platform that basically does that for you, right? If we were still doing, basically, you know, uh, data visualization on top of maps at the level that we were seven years ago, um, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't really be in business anymore, right? Because there's so many ways that for, there's so many tools that have popped up that have made it easier to do that. And that's great. And that's, and uh, it, it's a good thing that that's happening. Uh, but I think like our open source work has actually been important in allowing us to pushing us to grow and evolve and, and, and putting us on one of those ride the crest of the wave uh, paths rather than a lock down your, um, your competitive advantage and squeeze every nut out of it. So why is open source the way to go? If, if there's these like two approaches that you say, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily is the way to go for everything or everyone. I think it's worked really well for us. Um, uh, I think it, you know, 
Joe Morrison has a number of blog posts that are worth reading about the different sorts of approaches to open source and how you can make it work. I think that my takeaway from, from that is that there aren't really great roadmaps uh, for how to do this. Uh, and I think for certain sorts of tech and certain sorts of work, it is even works better than others. Um, uh, and I think, you know, the, the trick is always figuring out how can you create a thing, make it open and still convince people that they should be paying you money to do things uh, such that you can continue to pay people and hire them and, and all that. That's the, that's the trick. And so there, there are a couple different models of doing that. Um, uh, you know, again, Joe's, Joe lays some of them out pretty well. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily the best model for every single thing. I think we come at it more from a, a different angle where development seed is first and foremost, uh, organization that is impact driven. Like we are trying to make it easier for people to access the data that they need to make good decisions, right? And we've come down this path of working in, in geospatial because geospatial data and earth data is the area where there's the biggest gap between the potential value of this data and the application of this data to solve real, real problems. And that gap exists because it's hard to work with. And so we're building, we want to build tools that make it easier for anybody, for more people to be getting more value out of that data and making better decisions in the interests of our planet and the people who live here. Uh, so that's, the, with that as our goal, then open source makes sense. And then it's the trick of how do you then figure out how to how you work in a way that allow exactly. you to make those sorts of contributions. Um, and so we're coming at it at a slightly different angle. If your goal is maximize profit for shareholders, then open source may or may not be the, uh, the right approach for you, depending on the sector. And it still may be, even in that case, it still often may be. Um, but, but again, it really depends on the sector you're working in, the type of problems you're solving, for whom, how those, who's, how you're getting, uh, recouping the value of what it is that you're creating, who's, who's paying you for this thing and, and what are their incentives. Um, so, yeah, but for us, given our, our interests and, and, and goals and worldview, it, it, it was kind of more working that the equation back the other way. So I, I, I do want to like understand that a little bit better about how you guys make that work. Is it that when you, um, propose to work with an institution or something, you're like laying it ahead of time about like, you guys have this problem, we know how to solve it and we wanna build something that's open. And, but that's like what you pay us for. It's like, we've solved the problem for you, but it's also solving it for someone else. And then instead of you selling something to a client, it's just like you're selling them something, but it's just open. Is it something yeah, like that or, or? That definitely happens, right? And there's some of our clients that actually want that, right? They're hiring us because they know they're not gonna have to deal with that they, they're, they're incent they want something that's open at the end as well. So the work we do, particularly for development organizations like mm -hmm. UNICEF or the World Bank, like they're, they want the end thing to be open, uh, work with NASA and USGS, like ultimately they, they want that tool to be open. And so that's actually a value for them is they know that they're not gonna to have to fight us on that, right? That we're aligned on, on that goal. In a lot of cases, it's actually more just that the, the group wants a thing 
And we're able to get them there much more quickly on top of the open tools that either we've built or that other people have built. And so we're going to give them their solution, but it's gonna involve a lot of components that were previously existing openly licensed libraries. And some of those will improve along the way, including some of the things we've built internally as well. We'll, we'll add features or we'll add enhancements to make it work for that use case. And so they, for them, they only really care about solving the problem and having code. And, and they also care about having code that they can continue to iterate and improve, uh, particularly, and, and, you know, when we're working for a, a large institution, um, they want to know that if we, if this, you know, if we're a 40 person shop, right? 45 person shop at the moment, if we disappeared tomorrow, they want to know that they're not locked in, right? And that they're not getting themselves in trouble. So knowing that they're getting uh, tooling that is open, that there are other developers around there, uh, around many of the components, knowing that they can have their, hire their own engineers and there isn't a license restriction that prevents them from, from like getting into the box is important for them to have the confidence to hire a group like us. Um, so in a lot of cases, it's just that they want the, the end solution and that's the quickest, most efficient way to get there. There are certainly cases where we deal with partners that some of what they're doing that they want us to build on is so unique to them or special to them um, that either it doesn't make sense to open source it because it's kind of basically glue code that only would work in their world anyway, and nobody else would ever get value out of it, or where they feel like they 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 have a, don't have a level of comfort in um, in open sourcing it, and where we personally don't see a lot of value, uh, and in that those cases we'll build them proprietary code for them, but we'll still even in those cases spin out the elements that we think do have wider application or, or where we are pulling in some of the other open source tools. One example of this is we built the uh, election maps for the Washington Post. Uh, a lot of that involved some pretty deep integration into their existing CMS. They didn't want that to be publicly available code, partly because largely, honestly, um, because, well, I don't know the full reasons. I suspect some of it is, is that that just would give a lot of information about how their platform works that could potentially <laughs> be used by somebody who wanted to attack their platform. Um, and so they didn't want that, the core code to be open source. And that was fine, right? Because it was so integrated with their own proprietary, their own internal content management system that didn't, that didn't make sense. But we were able to spin out two really valuable open source libraries out of that work. One to do, uh, called Dirty Read Projections, which does you know, allows you to, to trick WebGL into thinking that you're using a different uh, geographic projection than than WebRecator because they had they wanted to use Albert's projection, so we built that out. We abstracted it in a way that could be useful for others as well, and um, and a GL testing kit was another thing that we did because we wanted to be able to. Uh, before we built a lot of tooling on GL, understand how many of their users were actually going to be able to render that. And then a, a headless screenshotter in order to capture, like create pictures and maps that could be fed into their app. Like all those, all those elements were able to be open sourced. And those are the things that were most likely to be useful to somebody else. Um, and so is that, is that something when you work with the Washington Post, you're like, 
well, I'm guessing also ahead of time, you don't necessarily know what all the work that is going to be needed. So you can't necessarily always come up and say, hey, we're going to make a library that does this, this and that. Are you fine with us opening sourcing it? But I'm also guessing that now you've been doing this for a while. If they approach you or you approach them, there's like this expectation that some of the work is, is going to end up there. I'm guessing this is like something that is part of the conversation. I could also imagine not everybody yeah. is is open to that. Yeah, it, it it you're right. Like it is. Yeah, it, it ends up being part of the conversation. I mean, one of the things that we enjoy is very good trust relationships with our partners, particularly, you know, by within a few months of delivering on the project, we're at a place with them that we can have more of those those conversations. Um, uh, and, you know, if there was a really compelling reason why some of this shouldn't be, then we would have listened to them on that. But I think in these cases, it, it was it was clear. And and this is also, you know, this is a media organization that does a lot of work. They also were all, already had plenty of open, uh, history making uh, asset, uh, parts of their work open source where, where it was possible. So they weren't antagonists. They, Washington Post is actually really great on this. Um, but with other partners, yeah, I mean, I think if you're hiring DevSeed, you probably are at least open to the idea of open source. You're probably using some open source tools already and you understand the value that you're getting from those. Uh, you might already be contributing. Um, uh, and, and I think like some of it is just understanding the incentives of that organization, whether that's uh, prestige, whether that, you know, getting credit, making sure that they're getting credit for inv the investments that they're making in, in this area, or whether that's for them. Um, this is a, this is an existing open source tool that they're going to be, their system is now reliant on. And so folding back in these features basically makes it easier for them to maintain their own system going forward, because now it's part of core and not a thing that they're going to need to figure out how to reintegrate every time core changes. Um, so you, you can, you can, I mean, open source sort of makes sense in a lot of ways. And so you can right. find the ways that it makes sense for that organization and, and work with them on that. And, and yeah, groups that have, you, groups that you wouldn't even be able to have that conversation with aren't likely to be development seed partners right. customers okay. anyway. And I, this, this might, I'm not sure if this makes sense, but I do wonder, like, if you work with someone with the Washington Post, again, to, to go back to them, who are like a public media and they need they need the trust in the people who read them. Do you think that's also part of the reason why it makes sense for them to like say, hey, look, this tool that we're using, it's like you can go check it out yourself. Does that yeah. bring some legitimacy? legitimacy? I think it does. I don't know how much that's the case for for. The Washington Post in particular, because of what we were doing, um, was essentially publishing data from the AP faster than anybody else and in a more useful way than anybody else. But there are other places that you could see this exact same data. I think they got more of their validation through just, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. if I go to these other places, I'm going to see the same numbers. But I think that's absolutely true uh, for some of our other partners, uh, particularly around uh, where you're deriving information in some way, and particularly around AI. And I think that this is actually a really important conversation to have. Um, there is a, a groups that we're working with in humanitarian space that want to do everything from be able to use AI to um, 
to model uh, crop output and, and to do better prediction of crop output, to locating all the schools in the world, to um, you know, uh, assessing uh, disaster risk. And there are a number of, there are a couple of different approaches for, for doing that. There are certainly a number of companies that are, are jumping, that are popping up right now that are applying AI to these problems. Uh, and I think particularly for NGOs, for, for big relief organizations, all of these methods have risk of bias and have risk of getting things wrong in a way that under the, the like uh, that has implications, right? So for um, we just did a bunch of school detection work with uh, UNICEF, where we were able to detect tens of thousands, I don't remember the number of hand, but tens of thousands of, of new unmapped schools in eight countries, um, and which is great. Adding that many schools to the map is a really fantastic thing to do. We know that we likely missed a lot of schools. We were able to capture schools that can be seen from space and have distinguishing characteristics that allow them to be noticed from space, uh, which actually fortunately applies to a lot of schools and places where they tend to be built by the same institution, either a development organization or ministry, the national ministry to the same set of standards using similar materials and different, like they have similar features around them. So there are a lot of things that, that make that very possible, but you're probably gonna miss small non-traditional schools, things that are essentially a gathering space in an outdoor area. Um, you're gonna miss urban, the things that are in urban areas that are just mixed within the, the urban canopy, if you will. So like, and, and the places that you're likely to miss actually are probably uh, schools that represent communities that are already underrepresented in other ways. Uh, and that is the thing that we acknowledge as a, as a weakness. Um, and, and again, like, and we would invite people to help us make it better, or at least to, to, to know that this is a thing that they need to keep into account when they use the models that we've developed. Um, a, and we also publish the code, right? So we're making the code available so that people could see that. So even if we didn't notice that, somebody else could try it out somewhere and come to that conclusion on their own. When you have uh, closed source proprietary kind of black box VC funded groups that are trying to do disaster, like build models for disaster response, like then you don't have those sorts of incentives to be open about the weaknesses um, you don't have any independent way of verifying that, including the organization itself that's paying for it. And so there's a risk that development organizations invest in a set of closed tools that ultimately erode the sort of trust that you're talking about, that they're, uh, because people on the ground will see, hey, wait a minute, you missed all of these schools that are serving this group, but you caught all the ones that are serving this group. And then you have a, a trust problem that a real trust problem, like a, for, for real legitimate reasons. And so I do think that there are certain sectors, you know, when we talked about open source being, you know, good or bad in some places, open data good and bad in some places, same with, with open algorithms. And I think in particular for people who are working in the disaster and humanitarian space, the, they should really think about defaulting to open unless there's a very compelling reason to use something that isn't. Yeah, that makes sense. I was actually that that's one of the things I wanted to, to touch upon. I was actually really like surprised at how much details you guys put out, like on that exact same um, work on, on the school mapping. You guys not you don't just put the data, you, you put like the metrics, like what are the challenges and something like 
all of that detail, which is like quite surprising. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just not used to seeing that level of, of detail, but- I mean, we're hoping somebody who's smarter than us will read it and tell us where we could get it better, right? Like, I think that's the, that's, that's part of the point is, is like have the conversation, show, you know, show your cards and see, and see, you know, what, what comes back from that. And you'd be surprised, right? Like we've gotten some really good, we've gotten great people through that, to that approach. We've gotten great insights to that approach. We've gotten really good partners to that approach. Um, because, you know, if you surface the problems, other people are probably working through the same thing. Um, these are no one's problems are that special. <laughs> um, and, and some of those people will, you know, will, will feel seen and want to like connect back to you and, and uh, in, in a way that's beneficial for them, for you. Yeah, I, I can totally imagine that's also great, like a great way to, to find people. Like if, if someone goes through and says, hey, like I made your thing like 10% better or like, <laughs> yeah. hey, there's this yeah. thing, like, why did you guys do that? Like, it's probably a great way to, to like find people um, as yeah. well. So, it, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Yep. No, I was going to say like a lot of our, a lot of our team members have come through our open source work or have specifically referenced people, the pe people who they've read their, like, I found out about DevSeed through this open source project, or I found out through this person who is exactly like very open about how they're working and where, uh, and the way that they're working. So th those, uh, it's, it's great. And I think it allows us, it also allows us to more easily attract the right kind of people, right? People who are going to be a good fit here, more easily find us. Um, and that, is good for us and for them. Yeah, that's that's also what I was going to say. Like, as as a fellow engineer, it is really interesting to read those those stuff. Like, I can imagine for a lot of people, it, it's like beyond the point, but it's probably a great way to find like other other um, people. I, I do want to come back on this like uh, field of, of of AI machine learning. So you were saying, yeah, there's these like you make a model, and that model is based on you know the data and, and the model that you make. So in the case of like those schools that you mapped did you how did you solve that if if at all like you were saying it's important to to communicate about hey look we are aware that you know we're only basically finding the same types of school like you were saying the materials like what's around them um because that's just how our models work right now so in in practice like if, if you tell that to another ML engineer, they're like, yeah, I understand that and, and everything. But if you put that in the hands of someone who, you know, might not understand that, how do you make sure that that's something that, you know, really gets through and, and how, what are some possible ways that you guys have tried to, to solve that? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I see kind of two pieces here, right? Like one is, for the partner that we're working with, right? Where we have an opportunity to work with them, that, that where we're talking to the, the person who's gonna be the end user of this data, it's a little bit easier. Then you can have the conversation upfront um, about the need for high quality data, like training data in the schoolwork. We, we took uh, data that they were able to provide from of schools that they were aware of. Um, we have a, a really great data annotation and mapping team in Peru who was able to clean that data and already kind of produce something that they could see, oh, actually this is better. Like this 
probably was this random dot in the middle of the ocean probably wasn't a school i don't know why this was here um and, and so they are able to see that process of the data like getting cleaner and then you run the model and you get a set of results and then you you change some things and you see that so you kind of take them along in the process in the way that they have mm -hmm. a little bit more of an intuitive understanding about how all this works even though they couldn't they're not going to like build it yep. themselves they understand the dynamics in a way that give them a better appreciation for when you tell them this at the end they understand that why the trickier thing is where you are providing information to users that you don't get to talk to and don't get to bring along the process like you're publishing something and people are just going to download the thing and use it. And there you have to be a, a lot more thoughtful and deliberate about how do you communicate about the methodology? How do you communicate? Even if you have a methodology doc, few people actually read that. They just you are using this as one input into a thing and, and, and all that. So there are a couple of tricks. I don't think we have a complete answer to this. Um, there are a couple of tricks that we've done all, along the way that I, that I think get at a little bit of this. Um, one that comes to mind is we did some work a few years ago with the World Bank on evaluating the progress of electrification in India. And as part of that, we took um, 20 years of nighttime satellite imagery from the DMSP satellite program uh, to uh, as, a, as an input to sort of show how electrification ch has uh, changed across 600,000 different villages in India over the last 20 years. Um, and we had this data from DMSV, we had these points and you could intersect the points and get values and plot over time. Thing. Um, but the data is super messy. Uh, and there were things that we did in how we visualized that data in order to help communicate the messiness of it. Like even in mm -hmm. how we chose the scale, like the color scale we used and then how we chose like the kind of blurriness. We didn't, well, we had a point for each area. We didn't visualize these as points. We visualized them more as coverages because the DMSB data was gathering everything over a, I think it was a kilometer square area. So you, yep. you could you could have misinterpreted this to say, this is the value at this point, but that's not actually the case at all. It's really a point within an area that we were pulling yeah, yeah, from. Yeah. So we made sure that the visualization actually captured that. Like it showed this over a broader area. And so there, there, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it comes to how you present it. Um, and again, I, I think there, there isn't a perfect like answer to that. There's some tricks of the trade that you kind of figure out along the way. Um, but I think it, you know, it starts with, with kind of, being thoughtful about it, I guess, mm -hmm. and thinking about what can this data be used for and what could it, what is it not good for and how do we make sure that we're communicating that and how we publish it? Yeah, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I wasn't especially expecting like a, a full blown, oh, here's how we solve all the problems. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think um, we're all like struggling with those. I, I do yeah. want, you were saying they, they bring the data. Um, so when, in, in the case of like the um, uh, the school mapping, for example, like you you can have you you guys are probably the ones fetching the, the satellite imagery to to say here's you know how we have that. So, but I'm guessing at first you had maybe like vector data that says here's like where the schools are. How does 
um, like that's been collected with like something specific in mind. And, and if it's not been for like remote sensing application, there's probably something that's been done there. So how, how do you um, make sure that you can actually get something out of that? And, and like, because if you're not controlling the, the way the data was gathered in the first place, as you said, there's probably a lot of work uh, to be done. So, so could, could you maybe talk about how you guys handle that? Yeah. Um... I mean, it is handled by having a really great data team uh, that is very thoughtful and creative, like understands the problem that we need to solve and figures out how we can improve like what we're working with and how to improve it. And they spend a lot of time taking input data sets and then augmenting using that. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll use that to get a like a first pass model that can at mm -hmm. least give us some idea of where other examples might be and use that to harvest other examples to then create a more, a better data set. Like there are different approaches that we can use to, to augment the data set and get higher quality data. Um, and then once you have a very high quality training data set, um, then you can, you, you'll get better model results. And for them, they're just, that team is just so good at figuring out how to automate that work and, and be able to quickly um, pull together like high quality training data sets. So that's the, the part part one of that. Um, the part two is then how do we then like the ML engineers themselves take that and turn that into um, useful model data, right? How do they combine that with the satellite imagery data and make sure that it aligns? Which again, some of that is done on the um, on the data team side, but some of that is also um, how do we then automate and scale that? Uh, and so there's been a lot of work put into what are the, the data pipelines that we need in order to do that well. In places where data, good data sets already exist, how do we pull from OSM? Uh, or uh, how do we make sure that that's gonna align nicely with the satellite imagery that we're pulling that, or, or other places where some of this data might exist? And, and then, in trying to abstract out as much of that as possible into the sort of open source tools that we're talking about so that it isn't as much labor every time we need to do that. And so there are um, a, ton, a number of tools that we've built for plugging into annotation data sets. And, and, and even our, our data team tends to, where possible, we, we put things into OSM or into an OSM-like right. database in order to, to um, provide that, the annotations. Um, so we've invested a lot in the tooling around OSM as a way of uh, of automa automating and scaling the process of creating training data, but also of doing inference. Um, and then on the uh, end side, once you have your your predictions, like sometimes you can just put your predictions out, but a lot of times your partner doesn't want to know where a computer vision algorithm thought there were roads. They just want to know where the roads are. And so then it goes back to the, the data team to clean that data. And, and so in, in, in many cases, essentially what the ML is doing isn't producing the answer. What the ML is doing is making our, our data and annotation team 30 times faster at mapping this than they would have been otherwise, right? Um, Power infrastructure is one example of this. Like with the ML in there, the data team is able to map a country in a couple of days, whereas previously it would have taken months. Mm -hmm. um, so that that yeah, that is that's how it depends on who 
who the end user is and what the what we're talking about, but it's some combination of those three pieces are what we'll end up using. And and honestly, you should talk to Nana or some of the other folks on the GOAA team to get to get really dig in on this. Is uh, they can give you better ideas yeah I've, I've been i've been following some of them for for a while and and i think uh, there's probably a lot of really interesting stuff to to gather there as well um so just to stay a little bit longer on that on that topic sure. um so you have you have your problem um someone comes to you with a problem and they say here we have this data um and so you you guys are probably the ones that say OSM is, is one source uh, that we can take from. There's maybe this like optical satellite imagery that we can take from, or um, case of the uh, electrification, like there's this data set that we can, can go from. So how's that like process? H how, yeah, how does that process happen? Especially where there's a lot of um, uh, like data you can buy as well. I'm, I'm thinking mm -hmm. like planets. Um, I've heard of this company called ISI. Um, <laughs> just like, um, yeah. did you guys like have partnerships with um, with that? Um, is it also like the? Do you sometimes have a um, a client that that comes up and says, "Hey, we have this like label data, and we also have we want you to use like our country's remote sensing satellite or something like that." Um, yeah. We haven't had, it needs to be our country's remote sensing satellite, but all that other stuff. Yeah, we, we, this is coming back to what we were talking earlier about open, when does it need to be open, when not, right? Like if, if you can do it with open data, you probably should, but there are a lot yeah. of things you, you want to do that mm -hmm. there just isn't open data for, you need better data. And, and in order for that better data to exist, there needs to be some sort of commercial model for somebody to go out and collect it and continue to provide it. Right. And so we actually, we have great partnerships with a number of satellite with, we love working with any satellite company, anybody who has great data or huge fan or huge fans of, uh, and a lot of those groups we get to actually work with from time to time. Um, and yeah, depending on what their need is, we'll help them understand what are the you know, relative benefits of different uh, sources of data that they might they might get. And so we like to stay on top of what's going on so that we can be making the best recommendations. We don't have a relationship with anybody where we get a cut. Like we don't have mm -hmm. any kind of reseller agreement. So there's okay. never an incentive for us to push them towards one provider or another. And I, and I wouldn't want to be in a position where that was the case. Like we, mm -hmm. can, we just give them like our read of the state of the industry and where they can, can get to get data from. Um, so yeah, that's, so we'll help walk them through that. And then occasionally we'll, we'll, you know, we do have, we're plugged into everybody's APIs pretty well, where occasionally it makes more sense for us to just pull it. And then, you know, they pay us and we kind of pay the company yeah. on their behalf. Yeah. Uh, the end goal for most of our projects is to give our partners tooling that they can sustainably run without us. Uh, and so then we can move on to the next problem and the next, the next partner, the next project. And so that'll often involve getting them set up with the relationship with the partner that they need so that they can continue to access that data going forward. And the next, when they, in another year, when they need to run it again, they can, they can figure that out. And also it's just easier for us from a billing standpoint, if the credit card is on their, the, the, <laughs> their side of things rather than us having to, to do that. So 
that's you or and sometimes a partner will come that already has a uh, a relationship with a satellite okay. provider or this also happens right. on uh on the cloud infrastructure front like mm-hmm. we will we have people that we're working with who are already on a particular cloud provider so we have to make sure right. that our tooling will work within within that 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 ecosystem uh so yeah like so that that and th- and in that case, all the better, right? Because then we can get to work. As long as that data is going to going to work for what their needs are. Yeah, but I guess like then there's like also the infrastructure about like, as you're saying, y- you don't want to build something that runs on top of some data, but then you know the data stops coming at some point. So yeah. I'm also guessing that's like something you need to to, to keep in mind. Like Sentinel two is not going to run out tomorrow. Unless, you know, something really bad happens, um, but <laughs> we've all had bigger problems. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the whole field is probably screwed if that happens, <laughs> but like, that's, that's probably something where, you know, beyond the, oh, it's free. Um, it's like, there's already a lot of infrastructure around that. And it's pretty easy to, to plug into that. I'm, I'm guessing. That's that right. And look, and a lot of our partners have money, right? Like they have funds to pay for mm-hmm. things. And so for some of the times, it's not really that they they have the ability to pay. Um, some of them are choosing to use open source, not just because they don't have to pay for it, but because of how they want to use the derived product and how they want other people okay. to be able to use that. So some guys, it's important for them to be able to make the derived product open source, which some satellite providers or commercial providers are actually yep. have figured out a way for them to be able to do that and, and, and pay extra or pays to, like, uh, to get a license that would allow them to do that. So sometimes that's workable in any event. Um, but for some of these partners, it's more about how they want to use the data and, and what they want people to be able to do with it on the other end, not just whether or not they have to pay for it. Fair enough. So you, you brought up Joe Morrison, and I, there's something yeah. that um, I want to ask you about. Um, so you're on, on the receiving end of all these satellite providers, and you're like shopping for you know the best data um, and so Joe mentions that, you know, one of the problems right now is, is that it's not commoditized. It's like really complicated to get some of the data, but now he works for one of those providers. Yeah. So I'm really curious as to ask you, like, who's on the other end of that and, and who gets to pick and choose from all the, like, you know, whatever number of providers there are today. What's the like important thing? What's is that like really, um, do you see that as an issue? I'm not saying Joe is wrong. I'm just asking no. like, what, what you see it like, because you're like having to see with all those providers and you're the, you're basically the customer from all those providers. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely an issue. Um, I think it's an issue that people don't really feel the pain of yet because they haven't, the, the many of the sectors we work in haven't quite got to the art of what's possible, right? So even the work that we're doing for a lot of organizations, we're kind of like looking at a point, they don't need streaming data, right? They're looking at a point in time. They want to mm-hmm. know, okay. uh, having knowing where the schools were two or three years ago is probably good enough for their purposes yeah. um, at the moment, right? Um, and so because there are, and so in that case, then we can use Vivid or some other base map that's created that is accessible in a way that's different than the, you know, the old kind of you know, 
FTP-based de- like ordering, <laughs> you know, going through a sale, all yeah. the stuff that Joe talks about, which is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. When we have to do that, it is exactly as much of a pain in the ass as Joe describes it to be. Uh, and so we try to find ways to avoid that. Um, well, the result of that is there are a ton of opportunities for this data to be used that it's not being used for, which is again, the overall problem that we're trying to, to create. We're, we're, we're still at the point where we're getting people to be able to get as much value out of the things that are easy to use that we haven't really invested in mm-hmm. figuring out how to get them more value out of things that are really, really hard to use because there are human bottlenecks, not because of technical bottlenecks, which we're, we have more control over. Uh, or process bottlenecks, which we don't have as much control over. Um, but but we you know we are figuring it out, and and actually it's it's been easier to figure it out where we have big partner clients that have a lot of of saying. Right? We are working with uh, NASA has a commercial small satellite mm-hmm. uh, program that that purchases data from a number of small satellite providers uh, that um, requires them to maintain that data in a different place than their, their standard data, which is fully open. Um, this data is available to massive PIs, but isn't distributed in the same way. And for that, they need a, an entirely different um, archive and search interface and request interface. And so we're working with them to build some of that out. And that allows us to interact with the satellite providers in ways that we're now representing that. Like NASA needs X in order to be able to do this, which gives us a, a bit more uh, voice and leverage, I think, in some of those conversations on, on, uh, on getting data to be distributed in ways that are going to be be useful, and that's work that's worked well. And I think that like as as you see more demand, as you see more examples for how this could look, you'll see more demand for the for uh, more streamlined forms of access um, or new more uh, creative ways of packaging data where it's not just I'm paying for a square kilometer or paying for scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that will, will, you know, kind of create a market that, that the sort of world that Joe wants to see, I think will exist. I think the question is just how long does it take for us to get there? Um, and I think he's right. Like the, the countervailing force is that the, the existence of a set of very sophisticated users in the defense and intelligence community that are, can do all, a lot of that stuff and have already built out their tooling yeah. for a current mode of doing things and are very happy with that status quo. So you were, you were mentioning uh, at the very beginning when you were like presenting like development seed, um, like briefly, you were saying that you are trying to bridge the gap between the geospatial like data and then like solving those problems do you see that like your role changing if it gets like really easy to access a lot of the data yeah yeah which would be great right like well i think if if yes um i think if it gets really easy to access the data then our role is actually on the much more interesting side of this anyway which (laughs) is the interpretation and drawing insight from that data at scale still becomes a really interesting set of problems. And then how do you communicate that information to an end user in a way that allows them to make a better decision, right? Which isn't just 
dumping a bunch of data into a dashboard somewhere and expecting yeah. them to come and figure it out. But it's more closer to a weather app where you have a question and you need earth data derived insights mm -hmm. and you hit a button and you have packaged for you the information that you need in order to decide what you're going to wear when you leave the house today, right? Like more, more um, data extraction and interpretation and packaging and publishing pipelines that look like a weather app. Um, and that will all get easier to build on top of a better infrastructure that allows you to plug into data in real time as it comes off of satellites. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that sounds also like probably you're saying that the more interesting work. For sure. Absolutely. And yeah, and ultimately like impactful, right? Like at the end of the day, if this if this data comes off a satellite and no one's looking at it or like one person looks at it, it's there's so much latent value there that isn't being captured, right? Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I agree definitely with that. Um, yeah, I, I also kind of wanted to ask about everybody is like, there's been a very fun thing happening with this, uh, boat stuck in the Suez Canal where <laughs> yeah. every company was one-upping each other. Yep. Um, so it makes for some very fun Twitter drama. It was not yeah. drama, but like Twitter story to follow. It's like, um, our version of a TV show. Um, what to you, to the, to the problems that, that you guys are solving, what is the important stuff in the data? We, we keep hearing that, you know, super high res is, is this stuff. Like it's, it's also mm -hmm. this like game of one-upping of like, we got 30 centimeters, we got 15 centimeters. Is that really yeah. what's important or is it something else? Um, no, I mean, look, there are always going to be cases where having the clearest picture is going to be valuable. And depending on what you're looking for, uh, you might need clearer and clearer, right? We do, we have done work uh, looking at uh, encroachment on, on wildlife areas where we want to be able to, uh, to identify specific in wildlife, like Yep. elephants versus lions and versus um, cows versus uh, domesticated wild uh, animals as well. And that requires very high resolution imagery. Um, and so for that, we use actually, we actually used aerial imagery rather yeah. than satellite imagery. Yeah, I can imagine uh, an elephant in Sentinel-2 doesn't look great. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a really impressive elephant. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there will always be applications for which that is the case. I think my hope is that we are moving, fundamentally moving to a different mode of getting value out of satellite imagery, uh, where a lot of the value in the, in the old world of satellite imagery, when there wasn't that much of it, and it was where there, it was, you know, there weren't very good tools for interpreting it, was that some human being had to look at that and make a determination about what was going on in that image. Uh, and for that, higher resolution is always going to be better, right? You're always going to get better signal for a human eye when they have a sharper image of what they're looking for the most part, like higher resolution is always going to be better. You're going to be able to do more of that. Uh, I think what I, my hope is, and I think where we're going is there's just so much data. There's more data than what human eyes can look at. Mm -hmm. um, 
you, we will need to be able to automate the process of extracting information from a thing uh, and from, from this data in order to figure out, in order to learn what's really going on around our planet and the timeliness that we need that information. And that might still involve getting human beings to look at some pieces of this. Um, but that in that world, the resolution isn't necessarily the most important thing, right? Like temporal resolution might end up being more important mm -hmm. or the number of spectral bands that you have might mm -hmm. be better information for a computer process to figure out what's going on, depending on what, what it is that they're trying to detect. Or um, the, um, the continuity of images within a certain area, right? Being able to have broader swaths uh, so that you can see that you can see what's going on over a wider area all at the same time, rather than trying to piece together uh, like it would be hard to really get a full picture of the traffic of a city if you could only look at different pieces at different times of day uh, on different days, right? So uh, the, you know, there are different aspects that will become important as we become more sophisticated in our ways of processing and automating that. Um, and, and for that, like then higher resolution isn't necessarily the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's been a while since I've looked at the research around this, but a few years ago, um, when I, we were looking into the research around road detection, it seemed like at some point higher resolution actually confuses a lot of the models that were oh, interesting. prominent at the time, right? Like one meter resolution was sort of the sweet spot. And if you got more, if you got higher resolution data, you weren't necessarily getting better results. Now, the model, modeling approaches, this is three or four years ago. So modeling approaches have Fair changed enough. a lot since then. A lot of things have changed since then. Um, the, and so that may not still hold, but there still may be times where you get very little or no benefit to a process by having higher resolution. Um, and, uh, and, and other things like temporal resolution or swath or, or band, uh, band consistency, right. May end up being a lot more important. I think that's going to be a thing that's, that ends up being huge as, as AI becomes applied to this more often is, is how much can a computer assume that this, the pixel values in this image are comparable to the pixel values in this image, right? Human beings can kind of figure that out if the atmospheric effects, they know they're looking at the same area, they can kind of, oh, this building is the same as this one. So it's a little weird today, but I, I can understand the same thing, but that's not always gonna be the case for computers. So the, the, the having real analysis ready data where there is cross calibration between satellites right. and sensors and where there's very good uh, correction for atmospheric effect so that a pixel is a pixel is a pixel that's going to become a, a, an incredibly valuable asset as much as as resolution is for some applications yeah i saw you tweet uh like a, a i don't remember exactly when but you put out like uh, a few points about like what the future of satellite data could be and, and data fusion was uh one of them Yeah. And like, there's, there's been a lot of work. Um, again, I don't have a lot of the historical context, so maybe this is not new at all, but for example, emerging Landsat and Sentinel together, is yep. that, is that what you meant by, by fusion data sets? In that? Yes. I mean, that was very specifically what that was referring to is uh, there's a new data set that NASA put out. It's a great data set. It should, it should be more widely known. Uh, it's a, it is a provisional data set this, at this moment, but it is a harmonized Landsat Sentinel. Mm -hmm. It's a new approach to harmonized Landsat Sentinel. Um, 
they've done a lot of work on on harmonization and atmospheric correction on both sides to get very well harmonized data. Um, it is available now and worth kicking the tires on because the goal I think is to scale that up. It, I don't think it's available. It's not available globally now. I don't remember the exact area that it covers, um, but the, I think the intent is to scale that up uh, for the whole planet. And even uh, I think I think I believe I'm not speaking on behalf of NASA, but I believe that is also to then go through the archive and try to produce this right. uh, back, going back as well. And that's just such a valuable data source. Uh, now you're talking about uh, and I. I my understanding is the intent is to include the new Sentinel mission, Sentinel two missions as they go up right. C and D, and uh, Landsat nine when they when it goes up. And at that point, you're going to get to basically daily coverage yeah. in a, a daily, daily comparable data, a daily data set uh, that is fully open. Um, uh, and you know at 30 meter resolution, right? So there's certain applications that that's super suitable for and others that it isn't, um, but that's incredibly valuable. That's an incredibly yeah. valuable land coverage data set. Um, and so I do think you're going to see more, more of that sort of data fusion where you have fusion from different sensors in order to get better temporal coverage, but also where you have fusion of different sensors that are providing different pieces of a picture so you can more have a, like, basically have a package that is calibrated in a way that you can expect a relationship between those pieces of the picture, right? Like the, um, yeah, and that might be um, sea surface temperature uh, and current speed, right? Like right, those yeah. things might be collected from different sources, but they've been calibrated in a way that you can expect that there's a correlation between the times and there's a cor there's like accuracy that, 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 that a that a a difference that you know over time is an actual difference in the world and not a difference in the data uh, right that, that the way the data was prepared and that I think will unlock a lot of really great science so maybe this is a world I'm not super familiar with, but this sounds to me like a lot of the weather and meteorological data sets that are out there which you get like the um, wind measurements. And it's not a direct measurement. It's like uh, multiple observations that have been aggregated, put through a model. And then it says, here's like the U component of the wind, like everywhere in the world, six hours. Yeah. Do, do you think that's where we're heading for um, things like optical imagery? Um, for things like optical imagery, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think like, You'll first get it in other sorts of phenomenon, right? Like you'll get um, uh, modeled, yeah, like this already happens with ocean currents where it's basically yeah. a combination of satellite derived data and buoy data and other things and that will get better and, and more accurate. You'll get this for um, soil moisture. Uh, mm -hmm. which would include some uh, optically derived data, but yep. also thermal and, and other, other bands of data or other sources of data, including probably some ground, some ground in situ data. Um, uh, probably more in, in optical, probably more on the non-visible spectrum side of the, of the world where you get like, yeah, you'll get a, a 
vegetation in the global vegetation yeah, right. index or something along those lines or something. Yeah, I, I do think that that there will be applications where that becomes um, where that is valuable and where you have the data coverage necessary to provide something that is that is novel and useful. So it's more maybe around like an uh, the beginning of an analysis already rather than like this raw pixel of like this is the the band of like RGB in, in Sentinel two, but in NDVI is like already trying to start an analysis rather yep. than a pure measurement. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Um, I I do want to come back to um, how do you like moving a little bit away from like the pure engineering and, and the data and going to you know, uh, like zooming out a little bit and seeing like what, what you guys are trying to do. It looks like you, you guys have a lot of different partners and, and work with many people. How does that happen? How do you decide um, who you work with? Um, so everything, every potential project, a lot of the projects that come our way are people who come to us. Um, okay. we, have, we're, we have the benefit of a lot of a lot of requests. Um, and I think that's partly because we are so open and, and, and verbose okay. about what we do, which we should do, always do more. Um, but a lot of stuff comes into us. Every opportunity that comes our way starts as a, a ticket and a repo that's available to all team members. Um, we have a few kind of idea, recognized criteria on which we're evaluating those opportunities, things like uh, mission fit, and is this an organization that we believe in what they're trying to accomplish? Is this a, a technical area that we have something to contribute? Is this an area where we have something that can learn? Is there their ability for us to do additional uh, open source work or R&D work on the back of this? Uh, you know, things along those lines are things that make it more, is it an um, initial area that is particularly compelling to members of our team? Okay. Um, uh, like all of those are kind of the Lose criteria. Like, is this a partner that would be good to work with in terms of just them being able to, um, you know, are, are they able to make decisions on a timeline that you can actually work with them? Are they able to, um, are, you know, are they just good people and, and, and okay. are they curious people? And, uh, you know, are, is this somebody who's going to create a contract and hold us to the to it, even though the world has changed, or is it somebody that actually wants to build the best thing at the moment and we can actually work with them along the way to get them to a point that they um, are most likely to be successful, all that stuff. Um, but then, yeah, it, it is a, a conversation and some of it depends on how much work we have at that given time, what we can take on. Uh, and I'll tell you, there are just so many times where we're like basically strapped and there's somebody that comes in, it's like, oh, this is such a good opportunity. And so we try, we, we often, uh, find a way to make it happen um, because we really are passionate about the work or we're passionate about some of the spinoff benefits of the, the tech we're going to be able to create or um, or it's a group that we've always wanted to work with and now we finally have a chance. Um, but that's generally how it works is it's, it's pretty, yeah, we figure it out as we go along. But It's a pretty but, nice situation to be in. Um, it is. Yeah, we're, it is a good situation to be in. Um, Yes, I think we've been deliberate about maintaining a team size that's smaller than the amount of 
great work, good work to do deliberately so that okay. we never find ourselves in a position where we have to take on not very compelling work. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> because you don't keep amazing people when you have to start giving them shit work, honestly. And so we, uh, we, so we are often on that other side of things where there's more good stuff out there for to do, to do than there are people on the team to do it. Right. I see. Which is, uh, yeah. And that's, that's actually something I, I wanted to ask, but I think we've, we've touched upon is like, how did, how did you put like a team like that together? Cause you, you were saying 40, 45 people, that's starting to be quite a lot of people. For sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who, is in the, the enviable position of having a really great team um, would be lying if they didn't say there was some luck involved in the beginning. I right. think we got some really great people early on. We got some great projects early on and those things just fed each other really well, right? You got, we had interesting projects um, and, and, and great people, which brought in more interesting projects, which allowed us to have great work to talk about and to do open source work on the side. Is it, so it's like this, this loop of interesting projects, good people bring good people, good people bring interesting projects, but the, like the, you know, the, the, the lubrication for that engine is comms and be, and talking about it. Like mm -hmm. that doesn't work if you're not talking about the things that you're doing, if you're not right. putting things out in the world in a way that is actually helpful, that people want to carry that message and not just bragging about yourself. Um, Fair enough. And so, yeah, that's, and how it's worked so far and yeah and i think like one of the other things also that is that we have you know like our approach to how we solve the problem has allowed us to attract a team that is very diverse in a lot of ways right and okay. including in diversity of background like we do have some people that are very deep in the geospatial scene, right? People like Ben Sarago, who's been building out the COG framework, who's yep. been doing this forever and comes from Mapbox, or, or Nana, who has a PhD in, in machine learning and particularly in application to, um, to, uh, to satellite imagery. But then we have other people like Amy Bartescus, who came from a company where she was at Nava, which was doing more work around uh, healthcare in the okay. US, like healthcare and, and other things around providing government services or Drew who actually came from a bank, all right? So we have okay. these people who have very different perspectives and it's it's just like a great scene. You know, like I think a number of other ser geospatial services shops end up having a ton of people who all graduated from the same two or three programs uh, devoted to a particular monolithic software package. And that <laughs> okay. is, this is exciting a place to work, right? right yeah. And so that doesn't attract. Uh, uh, and so I think some of it has been our, our interest and willingness to find people who um, are outside of the typical mold, um, but bring actually bring a lot of value into the sector. Talking about that, can you tell me how development seed started? Like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd be so really I was in, to hear that story. Yeah, so it's uh, me too. Uh, so I wasn't <laughs> here for it. Uh, Development C was started in 2003 uh, by a group of Americans who were all in Ayacucho, Peru during grad school. Uh, okay. Eric Gunderson, Bonnie Bogle, and Ian Ward. Uh, and originally, they were just doing uh, building open source tools to help NGOs and governments get online. 
right? Back when in 2003 and 2004, it was hard to do that. Uh, and it was huge in Drupal community and building out open source tooling for connecting, building places for people to connect before Facebook existed and um, this other stuff. Uh, got really big into open data and doing a lot of work around open data of all sorts from um, putting school, uh, helping Department of Education publish school data better to working with the World Bank on their first big, on the, their big open data uh, site and initiative at the time. And then I was working with Development Seed as a, as a client okay. on some work in Afghanistan uh, around Afghanistan elections to, like, we, we knew that there were irregularities in the Afghanistan elections in 2009. Um, there were definitely some shenanigans, uh, but it was unclear the extent of those shenanigans and the degree to which they influenced the impact of the election. Okay. And so we, the group I was working with at the time, National Democratic Institute, worked with Development Seed to pull down the election commission's own results data, parse out this 4,000 page PDF like scanned data PDF in, um, I think it was, there was an English version, but that, you know, um, and turn it into a map that showed what happened and to overlay that information with ethnicity data, to overlay it with population okay. data and to really start to get a picture of, oh yeah, there was a lot of, of shenanigans and it basically all uh, supported one candidate. Uh, and it was from I am told by other people who are in these rooms, it was that that, that data was, that map, that picture was really important for the international community to determine that they did not support the outcome of that election and that a runoff would be required. Even though the round, the election itself said that Karzai had won outright and didn't need a runoff, there was a rejection of that outcome and a, and a runoff ended up being held. Uh, and so for me, it was one, it was a great example of seeing how you, how, mapping data and showing and putting data in, in like data becomes the glue, geography becomes the glue to combine a bunch yeah. of different disparate data sets to be able to get a good picture of what's actually going on on the ground. And so that was a really good takeaway for me. And then for, you know, Eric and Bonnie and that crew that ended up being the beginning of creating Mapoc, what would become Mapbox. It was really hard at that point to put that data okay. on a website. So they built a set of tools that would grow and become Mapbox and eventually several years later, Mapbox wasn't just being used in their own work, but Financial Times was using it, Pinterest was using it. And so they spun that out into a separate company. I came in and took over Development Seed in 2013 okay. when they spun out Mapbox to continue it along that initial mission of, of using data and tech to solve like hard social and environmental problems. And I can and continue in that way. So yeah, that's, that's a, like, I did not expect it to like go that way that far back um but that's <laughs> yeah, that's why i'm i'm happy to have those conversations because i probably wouldn't have known otherwise and so you were saying that um i'm, I'm trying to understand like your path as well as, as an individual like mm. did, did i understand correctly did you say like that was the moment where like geospatial made sense or, or were you working in geospatial before that i had done stuff in, ge in geospatial before that right we did some work mapping polling stations in the first geospatial project I did was in the Palestinian territories in 2005, 2006, mapping polling stations. And there was really important, even though there were only a thousand polling stations, there are so many restrictions on movement that you might be 
hundred yards from a polling station, but it takes you forever to get there because of okay. the, the blockades and uh, uh, checkpoints along the way. And so it was hard for people to know where to go to vote. And it was hard for the, even the election commission to know who could vote in a place, uh, who would actually have access to a place if we put it here. Um, and so we, that was some of the work that, we, that that was some of the first mapping work that I was doing back in those days. But this was sort of a different level of realization of the value of, of combining different data sets and, and the, the, the way that you can create understanding on the canvas that is geography, right? It was, was a really big realization for me in 2009 um, that I hadn't really seen previously in the same way. Um, and I think, you know, again, 2009, it was really hard to provide geographic data on the web in an interactive way that people can can like interrogate it and start to draw their own conclusions from it. And there were some things that we got wrong, definitely, in how we did that. But there were enough pieces that showed what might be possible um, that I think it was exciting for me personally. And, and certainly it seemed it was exciting for, for, for Eric and the team and that they kind of dropped a lot of their other work and started right. investing much more in, in developing out the Mapbox stack. Can I ask what you were doing like before that? So, um, so I've always been kind of flirting with this interface between humans and technology. It's where a lot of the really fun problems are. Um, and so my first job out of college was on the, more of the tech side, helping support language instruction software. Um, and then I left that as a young wide-eyed idealist to come down to Washington DC and work with an NGO that was promoting democracy and human rights um, and quickly became like the guy in that organization who understood technology okay. and helped build out the technology, like technology as a programming area, which involved all sorts of fun work from using SMS like encoded SMS messages to monitor elections through to, you know, these sorts of mapping efforts, wide scale mapping efforts. Um, I did that until for a decade, I did that until 2010, then 2011, then bounced to the state department uh, as to build the program uh, under Hillary Clinton's state department, there was a large emphasis on internet freedom and making sure that the internet itself was a place that protected people's rights to uh, freedom of information association um, and assembly. And we build out the program, the programming piece of, of work that the state department would support in order to make that more of reality. So everything from training, like digital security training for journalists and activists through to supporting technologies like Tor and other tools that okay. uh, actually give people access right. in places that are otherwise being blocked. Um, and then left that in 2013 and was starting to figure out how to pull, pull together a group of people to work on tech and human rights issues when Eric called and said, hey, I got this thing. <laughs> Do you want to take over development seed? Which is a group that I always respected and, and was, it was um, yeah, didn't have to think about it very much. Okay, so you were, you were doing something else and then you got pulled to um, development seed and, and jumped on that in 2013. Yeah, and have spent the last eight years learning how to run this organization. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a wild ride. 
So that's also something that um, I, I wanted to ask you is like, it seems that you are very driven by the impact of what you're building. So how can you build a company around something like that? Because in my very uh, naive model of the world, it's like, there's two things. There are like NGOs and non-NGOs, mm. basically like for-profit. Um, so one of the things that I'm really interested is in um, think companies like uh, Signal who are trying to build something yep. and they're saying, we're not for-profit, we're for something else. So yep. in, in geospatial, that's also something that I believe is quite important because of the impact. So how do you do something like that? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Let me kind of spitball along the way, right? I think <laughs> sure, one of the things that I've learned is that there's not as much space, there's not as much of a gap as you might expect between NGO and for-profit mm-hmm. organizations, right? At the end of the day, uh, those entities have incentives and they're maximizing around those incentives. Um, and well, a for-profit might cast that more in terms of shareholders and returning profit to shareholders and hitting certain um, like milestones that are related to growth of the company and, and the you know, footprint of the company and making it a bigger, more prestigious, higher market cap, whatever you want to call it, capturing more of the market. NGOs actually act in somewhat similar ways, right? At the end of the day, um, they're trying to, they believe that they, they're not all, let me say, like a lot of the NGOs that I interact with in DC, let me be more clear, uh, that I work with particularly in DC are part of this development industrial complex where they've equated their existence with the outcome that they're driving for, over equated their, their existence towards the outcome, right? Like we are here to um, feed children. And if we didn't exist, all the children would starve. And so we must continue to exist. And so a lot of their decision-making is, is somewhat similar sort of perpetration, like perpetuating the organization um, and making sure that to expand their footprint. And, and you see when you're in these organizations that they justify a lot of kind of, well, we're, we know we're not doing great work in that country or that country director is kind of a jerk, but we don't want to have to close the office because all these, bad, and, uh, and so they end up operating in ways that are, at the end of the day, you know, if you're running an NGO of 150 people, you also don't want to fire people, right? So you're going to continue to do, uh, make decisions because you're probably a good, kind, warm-hearted person and you feel this loyalty to your staff. So you're going to continue to make decisions that grow the organization rather than allowing the organization to contract. And, it, and at the end of the day, they, they act in, in somewhat similar ways. I think the, the key difference, whether you're an NGO or for-profit or whatever, is to get that incentive structure right. Um, why are you doing, what, what is pushing you towards the th- place that you're trying to go. And I think Signal has done it nicely. Um, I, I think there are a lot of ways that things that make it hard to do this. And then there are some that make it possible. It's really hard to do this when you're a VC backed firm where some people are expecting to make 10X or more multiples on the investment that they gave, right? It's hard, you have this set of people who are 
ultimately you can't override um, that have a set of expectations that isn't aligned necessarily with impact as much as they might talk about it. It's really hard to do this when you're a publicly traded company, although you can have impact, positive impact. And if you're the right person in the right organization of a huge company, there's a lot of good that you can do in the world. But ultimately, you can't be an impact driven company when you are when you have lawyers that tell you you're legally obliged to protect the value of shareholders above and above all other things. You can try to couch the impact related things that you want to do in terms of that will make those lawyers happier, but ultimately that's who, you, that's who you're gonna be. It's really hard to do this when you're a entity that is um, competing for funding in order to be able to, competing for like short-term funding, especially in order to be able to continue to exist as an organization. It's hard to really set yourself up to put impact first um, when you're constantly sort of struggling to keep the organization going. So there's a lot of ways that it, that are hard. I think the, the sort of secret sauce, the, the elements that make it easier are one, um, either whoever controls the organization ultimately needs to be bought in that this is why we exist. And so for Signal, because Moxie is like, look, this is just what we're doing. That gets to that gets to work, right? Like that 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 box is checked, right? Whoever ultimately decides how the organization operates needs to be fully bought in that this is why we are who we are. Um, and then you kind of need the nice thing about what Moxie's developed, and I think we're we're trying to do the same thing. Is like we we can create enough value. We can find enough things that are valuable and aligned with that impact that people are willing to pay us for, right. that we can sustain ourselves as an organization and actually make profit, make uh, an overhead on that that allows us to then funnel that into the things that people won't pay us for that we think are, they should, but they, are, they don't see it yet, or maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. We have to go figure it out if that's worth investing in or, or whatever, right? So we aren't spending a lot of time on, on fundraising. We're just, we have the funds to do things. And then if they take off, then, then we can grow them into programming. Um, and that's essentially the DevSeeds model. We are legally organized as a for-profit. Um, we operate as a nonprofit. Any profits that we make on our contracts are reinvested back into the team and the work that we do into the, in the open source work and R&D work that we do. Um, so we have this, and that allows us to, to pursue this impact driven mission um, that would be hard to do under other models. So is it like, because you work with all these partners and, and you're able to sustain yourselves, basically that allows you to follow that model? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I think the partners are just as important to it, right? Like I think the partners is, are what we, we play one very small role in the act of making change. Like we take data and make it more and help get it into a format where it can be used for something else, but somebody else is probably collecting that data yeah. and somebody else is probably applying that data. And so it only works where we have really good partners on, on probably both sides of that. Um, and it is through our partners that we get a chance to have that full impact, but it's also through working with our partners that we can see pain points that would be really hard to see if we were just sort of a, 
you know, a VC backed firm working against a problem that's still pre-revenue, doesn't have any customers yet. And it's just sort of a bunch of engineers in a room trying to figure out what they think is going to be the thing that's going to save the world, right? Like we actually have to solve real problems for real people. And that teaches us a lot about where, where the real pain points really are. So do you feel like a sort of pressure then in, in like, if you're the one that says, because you're the one that, you know, has those three magical letters, um, CEO about like, and, and you're saying, you know, that's the person that has to be fully on board about what the mission is. And that's probably something where, um, how do, how do you make sure you keep on track? Yeah, that's a good question. And one that I, we, I haven't done a good job, honestly, of getting to yet, but I think you need to find ways to bake that in. So it isn't just your decision. I think that makes right. sense. I don't know how Moxie's done that. Um, I should talk to Moxie. <laughs> I think they're in Not a way that. where they, they can't get bought, for example. So there's like, they're, they're like one of the things that was really interesting is how they're exactly trying to bake a system where even if like of all the cogs, he's the one that fails, the whole system doesn't yeah. break down. That's right. No. And I think that's what you have to do. And, and, and to be fair, like we haven't, I haven't done that yet. Right. Like that's a, that's a, that is work to work to be done. I think from, for, for development state. And I think it'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll be a, a better and stronger organization for, for having done it. And, and I'm just like, it's out of curiosity. How do you think something like that is, is possible to, to bake it in the system? Um, I don't, I, I, I would have, to, I do have to do more research on that. I mean, I do think I have more ideas that probably won't work than ones that I'm sure will. <laughs> um, I, again, I have, I should really investigate what, what Moxie's framework is. I think there is probably some way that you, well, so what we've done so far is we have like a sense of what it means to be DevSeed. And I see myself as a steward of that. Um, uh, as much as anything, right? And, and that even is like our culture and way of doing things. There was a lot about that that I had to learn when I took it over. There were things okay. that weren't natural to me. Um, and so some of it is really defining who you are and, and, and allowing anybody in the organization to make keep anybody else accountable to that vision, including myself and especially myself. Um, so that is like necessary, probably not sufficient. Um, but then I think you probably do need some sort of actual legal structures okay. that um, that provide for that. And yeah, it might be things like uh, a contract that it's about not being bought or the circumstances under which a change in the organization might, a major change in the organization might happen and what that would have to complete in order for it to be considered an improvement uh, like moving in the direction of that the organization wants to go and uh, or not um, you probably have a at least some set of team members if not the entire team that's empowered like through some actual mechanisms to keep the team on the working towards that vision and also to be able to update that vision as appropriate because the world changed as you don't want to be stuck in a thing that um, that doesn't make sense anymore. Um, but to be able to do that with the right intent in mind, where it's not being driven, where nobody, it is in nobody's individual benefit to like, nobody gets to like cash out 
as a result of that, right? right? Yeah. People like you, it, it is in a way that is in the benefit of the of the overall goals and mission and, and what you're trying to accomplish and impact you're trying to have. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not the best person to talk to on that, um, but, um, but yeah, it is a thing that I will be very keen to listen to the podcast you do with somebody that has figured this out. Well, if Moxie ever starts doing maps, I'll try to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. um, Man, if then, Moxie ever starts doing maps, I'm, I'm in. Whatever he's building, uh, I'm in. Yeah, Moxie, if you're listening, start doing maps. <laughs> no, they, they probably have a lot of, of stuff because I know they, they had some um, um, some troubles getting it in, in some countries. And mm -hmm. they, they probably have a lot of geopolitical issues um, at hand that's... I'll try to find a way to talk to him about. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, it's really interesting because I'm uh, I work with computers, and so um, it, it feels like in machine learning we have this very convenient thing which is called the loss function and, and metrics, mm -hmm. which is like whatever it takes you optimize this number, and so it's like how do you make that but for impact, um, mm -hmm. not you know necessarily having like a. a an answer it's just like my thought right now there but it's it's something that's really an interesting to think about is how do you build a system where the incentive is like measurable because from what i understand right now the incentive isn't like something that you can measure it's like you as as a team as a company getting together and seeing you know this is something we want to do because it's important you can't measure it you can't say you know this is something good to work on and this isn't um yep. But it's, I, I think it's something where maybe if it, if we manage to find a way to put that, then it's like, oh, you don't need to be for profit. You can be for this metric. Um, yep. and, and maybe it allows this system to grow to, to other uh, fields. Yeah. Hey, another person to talk to that beyond Moxie, um, I recall Jed, Jed Sunwal, who is uh, AWS and runs out the built the earth on aws project there be very appropriate for this podcast and i know that he is that is also an area that he has personally done a lot of thought and research is how do you build organizations like impact driven organizations and uh, so he might be a good person to approach with that as well awesome thanks for for that i'll definitely look it up I would listen to any podcast that Jed's talking about as well. He's a great <laughs> guy. He's smart. All right. Um, you were talking about, I think you said something really interesting about um, how do you stay re relevant in, you know, change. And so that's a great segue to say, you know, the world's changed a lot um, yep. in the past year. How have you guys um, handled that? Talking about COVID oh, for yeah. people listening in 20 years. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so there are a bunch of different pieces of that. One is how do we continue to work as an organization? On that, we were in pretty good shape to begin with. When, when COVID hit, we were already more, we already had more remote team members than office-based team members. So we were already, okay. and, and many of our teams span time zones, um, including everything from uh, Bangalore to Seattle, right? So. So we were doing a lot async. We also have a culture that is very, uh, and a way of working that is very protective of people's time and attention in order to give them space to crank. And that involves a lot of asynchronous communication. Okay. So we were already really well set up on our project work uh, for people to plug in. Um, 
and a lot of people had already created a space and, and were already set up to be, to be doing remote work well. Uh, so that mostly worked. I think we still found you know, there are people who had kids whose childcare shut down or people who were in offices that weren't as well set up for it. And so we did everything we could to work with them and help figure out how to get, get scheduling right or get them set up with equipment they might need. And, um, and that was really our operations team. We spent a lot of time focused on that and getting, um, getting everybody where they need, where they need to be. Um, so that worked as well as could be expected. I think we had fewer growing pains than a lot of organizations that weren't used to that. Um, and I'd be curious what a group that was doing a lot of defense related work where they required everybody to be in secure buildings, like what their, yeah. how, that, how they were able to navigate that. I imagine they had a lot more growing pains. Um, and then there was the, you know, the client work side of it. And that was sort of a mixed bag. We did have some projects that we lost. Um, okay. Not too many, but we did have some, we did have some, some notable projects that we lost because they were working with partners where their priorities changed and what we were working on was no longer going to make sense for them or no longer their, their top priority. Um, but then we had as many projects that we ended up have partners that needed more work as a result. Right. So Red Cross, for instance, we were doing work with the Red Cross on a platform that they use to collect data about uh, for disaster response from, uh, so we were working with the International Federation of the Red Cross, IFRC, and they received requests from uh, country chapters, from individual country chapters, and they have a, a platform they use to be able to understand the situation of, of different disasters in different countries. And that was built anticipating an earthquake in Chile, like a thing in one okay. place. It was not built anticipating, oh, the whole world's on fire and we need to really be able to track this event that's happening all over the place. So they needed a lot of work, uh, a lot of help figuring out how to build out their tooling and infrastructure to be able to handle a different sort of disaster than they've been prepared for. And so we had to spin up a lot of work and right. particularly in this first couple of months um, to support partners that were facing different sorts of data challenges than they were they were used to, um, or who wanted to be able to help in some way. NASA wanted to publish, was creating a, a number of yeah. COVID related data sets and, and, and wanted to be able to publish that data. Um, so it ended up being a nuts couple of months. Um, we continued to grow the organization through that time. We found ways to on, hire and onboard people remotely. Um, Man, I'm really looking forward to the first time I get to meet a lot of these people in person. I'm <laughs> very excited to for face-to-face -face meetings to be a thing again, hopefully soon. Um, but yeah, I think all in all, it was it was um, a, absolutely a tough year for everybody, personally and individually. But as an organization, um, we 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 did all right. And so you you say that first of all, that's like pretty nice to hear. Um, I'm, I'm glad you guys are, are, are making it work. And and I just want to ask. Um, so you, you said you have a like part of the team that's remote and, and part of the team that's with you in DC. How do you make that work? Yeah. So we have actually have three offices. We have DC, okay. Lisbon, and Ayacucho. So already having multiple offices right. requires you to communicate in different ways than you would if you had everybody all in one place. Um, uh, I think we make that work pretty well. And a lot of it is just like 
being in GitHub a lot, right? Like we have repos and very good communicate. We're, we're, we're screening for people who are good communicators. We're, re, we're helping people communicate well around project work. Um, all of our other important processes are run out of a repo, right? We have a repo for recruiting. We have a repo for business development okay. and wow, new that's opportunities. We have a repo for operations needs and everybody at the organization has access to all of those repos. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of transparent decision-making. It's not like everybody has a vote in everything or we would yeah, never yeah, get yeah. anything done, particularly as a 40 person organization. Um, but if there are things that you care about or things you think you think you can add value on around a thing that we're looking at in any area, you have the ability to do that. And it's easy to plug people in as we need more help on something, right? If we need more people in recruiting, they have the history of all the conversations we've we've had so far. If we need more people to help, help right. people to help right. with the proposal, they have the full thread, access to the full thread and, and other examples of other work that we've done and all that as well. So that's worked well for us. Um, yeah, and then just trying to, like my job, which is uh, trying to, connect the dots, provide contacts, make sure that people are have the information they need or being proactively given the information they need to make, to work well and make good decisions. Um, trying to do that best I can. And sometimes that works well. And sometimes I, there are things I can get better at. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the, that's basically how we made it work. Yeah. I can imagine with like, um, I, I don't know at the pace, you guys have been growing. I don't know how many people you were when, when you joined. Uh... Three. Right. <laughs> so I, I can imagine that's also changed a lot about how you have to work. Like, um... Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Every time, I mean, and that's, that's kind of the, the challenge and also the fun thing of running a small organization that's growing is as soon as you figure out how to run a six person organization, suddenly you're a 10 person organization with two offices and you need to figure out how to do that. Um, so yeah, I've been extremely fortunate along the way to have other founders and other people who are running companies in the sector who've been extremely generous with their time and what they've learned um, particularly the, that initial dev seed crew, like Eric and Bonnie and, 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 and that group have been great um, and extremely generous with their time and, and making sure that I have what I need, like in, in helping me to help this team be successful. Uh, but also, yeah, people like Joe or, um, or um, Robert at Xavia or Craig at Visuality and other people who are in the same sector. Um, um, Will at Spark Geo, like these are just good, good people who want, who are also struggling and want, <laughs> and are happy to to like talk things through and help help us figure things out. Yeah, I I've like maybe like a few people in the industry. I kind of stumbled upon this by accident um, about this geospatial world, and I'm like amazed at how. Um, like people communicate from, from different places and, and just, yeah, it's, it's really nice to see um, how open people are and, and how nice, um, like, even though um, we're all in the same industry and, you know, it could be really, um, 
it could be really close and, and people like not talking to each other and everything and then trying to step on each other. But it's really not. At least it doesn't come like that um, after spending a bit in it. And it's really nice to, to see that. I think that's right. I think that like at the end of the day, the people who are in this sector want to solve problems and that's what motivates them. They're here to, they're here because they care about the planet and they are curious about it and they want to learn things about it. Um, and ultimately like engineers want to solve a problem. Um, and so I think that that engineer mindset really plays itself out. I think particularly with some of the groups that are, that are more open source typed shops, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe less so with some of the few that are less so. Um, um, but, but, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I found that across the satellite companies that we work with. I found that across the, um, the services companies that, that, that we sometimes partner with and sometimes compete with. Um, yeah. And, and, and among the many of the, um, like the people who are running geospatial sh shops within larger organizations as well. Um, yeah. So it is great. It's a good community to be part of. I, I see the, like at my little tiny scale of, of a guy who's been in this for like no more than a couple of years, I, I've seen the, the industry start changing. You um, were mentioning about how you guys work on COGS a lot, for example, um, like there's a there's a bit of a it seems like at least there's a bit of a shift about how the data is accessed and and um, how we manipulate it from even like yeah. a few years ago. For sure. How do you see that? Like you know, without we, we talked about those um, the, the like new data sets and, and things like that. I just want to kind of end on on something like that. Like how do you see that going in the next few years? Um, and do you think like yeah, just how, how do you see that moving forward? Yeah, um, the for me, the, it's like putting putting data into pockets, putting pick, moving from pixels to pockets, right? Like there are not enough, even for as big as our sector is, there are not enough geospatial engineers and analysts to be able to, if, if every decision that needs to be made requires work from an individual, right. then most of the decisions that could benefit from this data won't use it, right? There's just like not enough for that sort of one-to-one -one relationship of I'm gonna task my GIS unit to create a map for me, and then they're gonna give me a thing, and I'm gonna make decisions based on them. So we have to take that geospatial understanding and knowledge and research and abstract it out in some way that it can be applied repeatedly on new data as it comes in um, and scale, right? And that requires us to move to new new models of data collection, access, storage, distribution, processing, which is largely going to happen on the cloud, right? The cloud is great because it allows you the scale to operate, but it's also great because anybody can plug into it and you can have people who are spinning up their applications right next to it and you can plug into, you can build an app right next to it, that, these data sets that allows you that sort of access. If the cloud's gonna work, the, the, then we need new ways of organizing data to take advantage of, of that. Um, and you know you can't just take everything that was developed, the, the file formats and distribution formats, and this is sort of like 
the, the origin of some of the things that Joe complains about. You can't take all of these ways that used to work in a non-cloud world and just put those same things on the cloud. Um, you're not going to have, have achieved that that outcome. And so, um, finding cloud optimized ways to store and manage and distribute and analyze data is is the challenge that we have right now that will unlock that future where I can just pull up an app and get access to the geospatial information and data that will allow me to make a better decision. Whether I'm a firefighter trying to figure out where the fire is going to go next or whether I'm a, a farmer in rural Ethiopia trying to figure out what, what I should be doing with this crop or whatever that is. Um, and so COG, which stands for Cloud Optimized Geotiff, yeah, is one. Said that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's cool. Is one is one important piece of that puzzle uh, for figuring out how we can organize data in a way that unlocks all of these different modes of usage that aren't possible when we have you know, Sentinel sites files yeah. locked into like huge, yeah, like two gig, um, uh, you know zip files or whatever, right? Like, or, 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 or Landsat yeah, yeah. scenes that are all in one big zip file, right? That doesn't allow you to the, the level of access that you need in order to be able to power all these things. So do you see that as like a technological um, challenge or do you, do you see any other um, challenges of, of like making that? I, I really like what you're saying, like the pixel to the pocket. Like, do you see that as a, as a technical challenge or is it like something else? It's a lot. I mean, is there are technical challenges associated with that? Yeah, the mo many of the most interesting challenges are people challenges. Um, right. So some of it is going to end up being like data licensing things and how yeah. data providers provide information. Some of it is going to be like there's this really neat opportunity for. So one of the projects we're working on with NASA is to build a tool for. Uh, bio, uh, to empower people who do biomass estimation. Okay. Uh, NISAR, the ESA uh, biomass mission, and and um, and Jedi are these great data sets that will be useful. They're all coming online. They'll be useful for biomass estimation, but they're huge. And the old model of downloading it to my computer and and trying it just isn't, is broken. Um, so we're building. We're working with NASA and JPL and, and, and a few others and ESA on building a platform that allows biomass researchers to take to actually take their analysis to the cloud and do that analysis there. Um, and that's cool. It's that is a great way of solving a problem. The, the actually the the really neat thing for me that that opens up is it opens up opportunities for collaborative research that wouldn't have been possible previously. Where if I was going to do this sort of research, I could only do it on my own university's supercomputing yeah. cluster. And, and I could only do it with researchers that happen to be like at the same institution as me. Um, but now you have this shared space that you can have somebody, one person at University of Maryland and somebody at University of Barcelona and somebody like wherever else, like researchers all over the world who are collaborating on a thing um, and you're able to reproduce each other's research. And, and it creates an opportunity that wouldn't have existed under the old technology. But in order for that to actually be realized at scale, you also need to change the incentives, the way that research right. is funded. Yeah. You need to find, change a lot of the human structures uh, that are 
that are reinforcing the current modes uh, and incentives or disincentives around that sort of collaboration. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those sorts of structures are gonna need to be challenged in order for us to get to that, that outcome that we're, that we're hoping for. It sounds like a, a great way to, to end this. All right. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for the time. This was, this was amazing. I think we nearly, we talked for a long while. Um, thanks a lot <laughs> yeah, for, for, sure. for this. Um, this was really nice. I, I really um, appreciate um, you wasting some time with me uh, talking about yeah, this. Yeah, likewise, man. I hope your other conversations are better. Uh, Maxime, thanks so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you.